Coming Back is a 100% listener-supported podcast. To support the show and to get your hands on some really cool podcast swag, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Your support keeps coming back ad-free, which is really awesome. Thank you. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after loss. On today's show, I'm sharing the mic with fellow grief-talking millennial Morgan Brown, who lost her mom suddenly in a car accident when she was 22, and now teaches those of us who are living how to talk about death, and how to talk about life with those who have died. Also on the show today, do you ever find yourself longing, pining, or yearning for someone who's gone? I'm addressing the subject of missing someone you've lost. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches the transformational power of grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Coming Back. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. For the top of the show this week, I want to talk about missing someone. This can be a person who's died, a partner you're no longer with day to day, friends who've moved away or out of town, coworkers who got transferred to a different department or maybe to another state or another country, the person that you used to be. You can miss a lot of people. You can also miss pets, places, jobs, or times or moments in your life. For the purpose of the show this week, I'm going to talk about missing someone, as in missing a person, but know that the overall message I'm sharing today can be applied to non-living things like places, homes, jobs, ideas, or previous chapters of your life. So non-living, either tangible or intangible objects, objects or ideas. It seems like societally, there's a lot of shame in missing someone, It's frustrating because with just about all things grief, there's not a set timeline for the amount of time you're quote unquote allowed to go on missing someone. But it seems like after a certain point, whether that's a month or six months or a year, sometimes it's even adjusted to society's idea of severity of loss, quote unquote, which is a topic for another podcast another day. So things like just one month for a pet or six months for a breakup or one year for a death or some garbage like that. It seems like at a certain point, this is the point I'm getting to, it seems like at a certain point, our missing someone, the act of missing someone, the emotion of missing someone is no longer seen or perceived as healthy, normal, or okay. It seems like at some mysterious point, society or even our friends, family, and coworkers, they look at us and say, you're still missing them? I think there might be something wrong with you. And even if they don't say it out loud, maybe they don't say it out loud, but we're all intuitive creatures here. We can sense a shift in energy and tell when somebody's attitude towards us has changed. If they don't say it outright, you might be comforted less when you bring up missing them or altogether ignored. You might get told one of the six grief myths that I so famously covered in episode five of Coming Back, as in, well, you just have to be strong. Get busy. That'll take your mind off of it. Why don't you just take some time to cry alone by yourself? But what about your other dog slash cat slash relative slash friend slash children, i.e. replace the loss? 
Oh, we'll just keep waiting. Time heals all. Or maybe worst of all, simply don't feel bad. You might also experience just a general lack of engagement from others when you bring up the person that you miss. Brene Brown says it beautifully in her book Rising Strong, which is on my 2017 top five must-read list if you're looking for a great book to dive into. Again, this is from Rising Strong. On weathering grief and heartbreak, she notes that one of the hardest feelings to deal with is longing. She writes, quote, Related to loss is longing. Longing is not conscious wanting. It's an involuntary yearning for wholeness, for understanding, for meaning, for the opportunity to regain or even simply touch what we've lost. Longing is a vital and an important part of grief, yet so many of us feel we need to keep our longings to ourselves for fear we will be misunderstood, perceived as engaging in magical or unrealistic thinking, or lacking in fortitude and resilience. It's sad to me sometimes that our culture is so forward progress driven. We focus so much on seeking joy and innovating new ideas and gaining forward momentum and traction that it's hard to look back without being made to feel weird about it. If it's not a special occasion like a birthday or an anniversary or a death day, it seems kind of unjustifiable in society to miss someone. We're perceived, as what Brene Brown said, as lacking strength or of living in another world or just plain not normal. Like, you're missing someone for no reason at all? Something must be wrong with you. You're not over it. You obviously haven't healed. Take a minute to listen to that, grief growers. Listen to the messages we're telling each other about grief. This timelining of and condensing of and justifying of and judgment of grief is so the word that's coming up for me right now is cruel and as i think about it it's so unlike the nature of grief if you've listened to this show long enough you know that grief is a lifetime experience a lifetime relationship if you'd like to think about it that way after you meet it and experience it for the first time, you spend the rest of your life saying hello to the myriad of ways that grief presents itself to you. It comes in seasons, and it comes in waves. And one of those waves is this missing someone, this wishing that someone who was a regular part of your life was still here to see it. Wishing that they were still reachable by phone. Wishing that they were sitting right next to you. I want to say today that if you're missing someone, no matter how long it's been since your loss, you are not delusional or stunted in your grieving process. There is nothing wrong with you and you are not regressing or going backwards and you're coming back. It is totally normal to miss the people who were regular and or instrumental parts of your life, no matter how long they were in your life, no matter how long it's been since you lost them, no matter if you had a mostly smooth or a mostly rocky relationship with them, no matter if they're dead or still alive. You are allowed to miss the people you've lost and you're not crazy when you do. I'm thinking now I should write a book called You're Not Crazy, You're Just Grieving, because it seems like so much of the work that I do is centered around breaking down society's stigma of grieving being something crazy or weird or off the wall. But before we move into the interview segment today, I want to offer you some best practices, like some takeaways for missing someone. This isn't really a how-to segment because everyone will miss people in their own way based on the relationship they had with the person who's gone. 
But if you want to be able to open yourself up to the full experience of missing someone and then really be able to release that experience fully sans judgment, sans guilt, sans thinking you're crazy, uh, follow these three guidelines here. So first, miss them. Whoever they are, miss them. Don't fight this feeling of missing them despite where you are, who you're with, or what you were just thinking about prior to this thought of missing them. Don't judge yourself for how the missing them came up. I was just thinking about fixing the remote control. How could I be missing them now? Don't beat yourself up over how long it's been. It's been three years. Why is this still here? And don't pressure yourself to distract from, push down, or gloss over the feeling of missing them. Maybe if I don't think about it, it'll just go away. The instant that you feel that longing, grief growers, lean into it. Just come forward into it. Oh, I wish my best friend could have been here to see me graduate. Oh, I'm missing him. That recognition. Man, mom should be here to help me with this stupid family recipe. Ugh, I'm missing her. God, I wish I could just call granddad and tell him about getting hired at the company where he used to work. There it is. I'm missing him. Just recognizing that and engaging with it. Missing someone, that that longing, that yearning, that aching feeling is the next emotion you're getting ready to interact with. So lower kind of all these walls and guards and say hello to it. In the words of one of my favorite female country bands, the Dixie Chicks, hello, Mr. Heartache. I've been expecting you. So just kind of crack open that door to that heartache coming in. Miss these people fiercely with your whole heart and body. Just let that aching inhabit your being. I'll tell you that my missing someone usually looks like disengaging with the outside world for a minute or two. I'll stare out the windows on the bus and let my mind go to this world where my mom is still alive. Or I'll look at the papers pinned up over my desk and just zone out from the work that I was doing on the computer for a little bit. Sometimes I'll take this really big inhale and then exhale that weight. (sighs) That feeling of, wow, that's pressing on my heart today. She should be here. This sucks. I miss her. However it comes through for you, grief growers, engage with it. That's step one. Next, number two, tell somebody you're missing whoever you're missing. Whether it's friends or family or the internet, put that emotion and call for support somewhere. It doesn't have to be the humans that you're surrounded by in the moment. Sometimes you've already had an experience that coworkers or the grocery store clerk or your mother-in-law isn't the best place for your heart in the moment. But identify somebody in your life who is and let them hold that space for you. Send them a text, give them a call, shoot them an email, talk to them when you get home for the day. Heck, you can even come and post in the Grief Growers Garden, which is my private online Facebook group. We share posts about missing people all the time. Wherever you go with this news, Grief Growers, go somewhere outside of yourself with it. This is not you sending up a flare or calling for help or needing fixing so much as it is a request to be seen and to be known and just, this is a day. I'm just having a day. Something like, I really miss dad's stories today. Or I was talking to our neighbor this morning about her new grandchild and I really miss the baby that we lost. I was in the grocery store today buying batteries to fix the remote control and had this moment in the sock aisle where I saw those big stupid fuzzy slippers that grandma used to wear. Life after loss is all about adjusting to life without the person that you lost. 
just sending that energy out into the world, making another human connection with it. If I'm trying to do this and it's a, it's a day, just letting that emotion exist outside of you, getting it off your chest, getting it out of your brain and out floating somewhere else with someone else. We feel less alone when others see and know us in our struggles. Lastly, and this one is probably my favorite, but take some kind of action to honor your missing them. Express your longing and yearning and wish you were here somewhere in the world, kind of like a mini ritual or a nod to the person that you lost that you're saying, yes, I agree to engage with this feeling of missing you right now. I'm thinking about these memories. I'm wishing for all of these things. Just acting that out in the physical world is another powerful, powerful marker of connection and symbolizes that this person, no matter where they are now, is still an influence in your life. And this doesn't have to be big. You can do something as small as switching the music that you're listening to to a song that they would have loved, or as large as making a piece of art, letting this missing them come through your entire body and your mind and expressing itself as this physical action or piece in the world. Just give that missing them, give that feeling a place in your space. You can get really creative with this. One grief grower posted in the private Facebook group uh, earlier this month that she can't write or journal as well anymore since her mom died two years ago, but she does do collages now, which is both an expression of her missing her mom and of her grief journey, her grief studies so far. I think that's a really cool way to miss someone and to express it in the world. I've also seen people going through old photos and sharing their favorites, telling their kids about the person they miss or recording or writing down stories to remember later. Even doing something as like time committing as agreeing to run a marathon or signing up to do some kind of charity work or another event in honor of someone who's gone. Grief growers, we've got park benches and buildings and the acknowledgement sections of books as physical manifestations of dedications to missing people. Why shouldn't we be allowed to admit to ourselves that we miss someone, to be able to share it with others and to be able to send our own physical dedication out into the world as well? You have my permission to miss someone this week. If you're missing someone and would like to share with us, or if you'd like to tell me about some of the things that you do to honor your longing and your yearning when it comes up for you, join me this Monday, January 29th at one o'clock central on my weekly Facebook Live, where we'll talk about society's stigma towards missing someone you've lost and how we can use that emotion of missing someone to connect more deeply with ourselves and with others. I have so enjoyed chatting with all of you on Facebook Live these past few weeks. I am excited to sit down with you again. Monday, January 9th at one o'clock central time. All you have to do is like my Facebook page, which is Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide to be notified when the broadcast begins. Next up, we'll talk to Morgan Brown about her project called Death Dialogue and the importance of having conversations with those who are living and those who have died. Morgan Brown is a strong believer that death is not a dirty word and is a topic worthy of conversation. In 2012, she got a call from her dad saying her mom, who she had seen just two days prior, was dead. With nothing to lose, she packed up her things and traveled the world. Morgan was looking for an escape, but what she found was connection. In every country she visited, she found stories of people who had lost loved ones and were questioning their mortality and place in the world. She returned from her trip dedicated to telling those stories and talking about death and dying in a world that often doesn't. 
Morgan's work spans multiple platforms and conversations. She writes, teaches a grief expression workshop, and creates interactive art installations and social experiments for people to engage with this conversation and with each other. Her most recent project, called Conversations I Wish I Had, invites participants to step inside a collapsible telephone booth and talk to someone who has died. When she's not trying to convince people to read William Faulkner's As I Lay Dying, she lives and travels in her 1970 VW bus named Bessie. I'm so excited to have you here on the show, uh, referred by one of our other guests, Gladys Otto, who was on the first episode of this season of Coming Back. And she said, hey, you're a 20-something that does things with grief. Here's another 20-something who does things with grief. And so I'm so excited to to have you on as kind of, for lack of a better phrasing, like a millennial who has a perspective of grief in the work that you do. So can you kind of start us off with your loss story, and then we'll slowly transition into what your work is and how it speaks to others in the world? Yeah. My loss story started when I was 22. I was just out of college and I had gone home for the weekend to um, celebrate my mom and my sister's birthday. And I came back, I was living in Santa Cruz, California at the time. And I came back to my apartment there and two days passed and I went to work and I was getting a lot of text messages and phone calls from my dad, uh, but I was at work, so I couldn't answer them. And I left work to go to another meeting and I was late and I was driving down the highway and I called him back. And I don't know if you can relate, but my dad does this thing where he'll call me many times and I'll think it's urgent but it's to be like, Hey, your insurance card came. And so I was, (laughs) (laughs) so I was in that mindset where I was like, I didn't think it was important because my dad does that thing where he'll call multiple times. And so I wasn't thinking like, Oh, he's called five times. This is urgent. I was like, Oh, dad just wants to tell me something. And he did want to tell me something. And so I called and he was asking where I was. And he was really kind of shy and timid. And he was like, where are you? Can you pull over? But I was late for a meeting. So I wasn't thinking, yeah, I'll just pull over. And so I was kind of pushing back being like, well, what is it? What is it? And he finally yelled and he was just like, Morgan, pull over. And as a side note, I had never heard my dad yell before. He's like a very gentle human. And so I pulled over into a shopping center and I yelled back because at that point, I'm still thinking that it's not important. And I yell, what? You're like, I'm late for a meeting. I don't have time yeah, for like this. I, I was totally in my head. Like, I'm late for a meeting. This is a new job. You're calling me to tell me something that's not important. Like, just tell me. And so I pull over and I yell, what? And there's just silence on the other end. And I start hearing these soft sobs in the background and I start freaking out and I'm saying, dad, tell me, please just tell me. And I'm crying because I've heard my dad cry maybe one other time when our childhood, my childhood dog died. Um, and And visions are flashing through my head and I'm like, someone's hurt, someone's hurt. And he finally is able to choke out your mom. She died in a car accident going to work. And I'm like, (laughs) 
yeah, it's like interesting to notice how sometimes I can tell that story and it's just a story. And then there are other times I allow myself to step into the story. Um, and it's real all over again. And, um, so I start freaking out and I'm hitting the steering wheel on of my car and I'm kicking the dash and I'm just throwing things. Um, and I kind of, and I'm just like, I say, okay, I'm coming home. And he says, okay. And, uh, and then I hang up and I'm just kind of sitting on the side of the highway, totally comatose. Like, I don't know what to do. I can't drive home right now. I'm a total mess. And, you know, I have this clear image of seeing these two women walking on the sidewalk by the highway um, that cuts through Santa Cruz and they're laughing. And I remember thinking, like, don't they know? How are they laughing right now? Like, the world just stopped. Um, And I remember, you know, looking at the cars to my left going to work and and just not understanding how they were able to go on. Like it was so just my, I felt like my world collapsed and, and I was watching these people go on with their life and it was so confusing to me. It felt like this out of body experience. I, I, I don't really know how to explain it. I was just totally confused And then I called my boss essentially, and I was the the, for the meeting that I was late to, and she was like, "What's going on?" And I'm just hysterical, and so she was with two of my coworkers, and they drove to my location, and they got me in a car. I don't even remember what car, and they took me to their house and. They emailed my other boss because I was working a couple jobs and they were like, Morgan's not going to be into work for a little bit. They got me a black dress because they're just, they're in planning mode. They're trying to think, what do, what does she need? Because I can't think for myself. And then I drove home or they drove me home, thankfully. And yeah, and then I entered that world of just being home and trying to uh, understand what just happened. I'm letting out this huge, just like exhale, because that is such a, there's so much that happens in a split second Yeah, in this story that it's like, holy crap. And thank you for going there today. That's just so powerful. And I have the same thing happen to me too. And I'm sure so many of our listeners can relate where sometimes you're telling the story and you can, you get all the way through and you're like, well, that's it. That's the story. And then sometimes it's like, oh my God, I'm sitting in that car. Just that visual is so strong. And this instant rage, this instant lack of understanding, this instant, you have suddenly stepped over the threshold into a new, it's like a whole other level of consciousness when somebody you love dies and you don't, you kind of get forcibly placed there. Nobody visits of their own free will. (laughs) So I'm interested to know next like what you remember 
about the days and the weeks that that followed that? Like, what was that like for you? Yeah. Um, Oh, man, it was so messy. I talked to a lot of people who are kind of in their first year after they've lost someone that they love. And they're kind of talking a lot about how nothing makes sense and it's confusing and they're disoriented and they're like, am I crazy? And I'm like, no, you are not crazy. Like This is incredibly normal. I felt like I was living in a dream world. Like I was home for two weeks. I grew up in the Central Valley of California and I was home for two weeks. And during those weeks, I was a mess, right? Like you know, we were drinking a lot. I have two sisters. And I remember, you know, coming home the day that I found out that my mom died, I came home that night and I fell asleep in the living room because I didn't want to be alone. And my sisters hadn't come home yet. And I remember the next morning kind of waking up and my head hurt and my face hurt. And I kind of heard these soft sobs coming from a part of the living room. And I looked up and my sister was sitting on my dad's lap crying. And I was like, oh shit, this is real. And there were moments of that being so real throughout those days and months and weeks. And then there were so many times where it didn't feel real at all. Like I remember going through Santa Cruz. I went back to Santa Cruz and just being really reckless because none of it was real. I was living in this dream world. And um, examples of that is I would, you know, maybe buy something that I wanted without thinking, do I have the money for this? Because in the world that I was living, money didn't exist or, you know, it just didn't matter. I remember like walking across the street and not using crosswalks and just kind of like not, it wasn't like I was trying to harm myself. It was that I didn't believe the world that I was living in truly existed. I remember going, I got a new phone about a week before my mom died. So I have a picture of her, like the last picture I have of her is taking a selfie on my new phone. Cause I hadn't had an iPhone or anything. Selfies were new to me and I lost all her voicemails and text messages. And I remember, oh, God. yeah, I remember like going into the Verizon store and asking to talk to a manager and right, this is two weeks after my mom died and I'm trying to keep it together. And I, she's like, why do you want these voicemails and I'm like, well, my mom and right. And I'm making a total scene in the Verizon store because, (laughs) because I'm like, my dead mom's voice is on this network. Like where, where do you keep it? And she's just like, we don't have that. And I'm like, I don't believe you. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know how to explain it. And I think People who experience it also can relate to kind of that when you're at the, the, the like depths of despair, there's also this weird, like almost manic ecstasy that happens, right? Like where things become extra funny or it's kind of like realizing that you're alive. And so you're moving through the world with this, 
I don't want, I don't know if it's mania, but it's kind of just like you're holding agony and ecstasy in both of your hands. And it can look really messy where you realize like, oh, I only have one life. So I'm going to do this ridiculous thing. But then you're also deeply grieving and you're deeply sad. And so it's the floor falling out from under me looked very, very messy. It looked like a lot of drinking. It looked like sleeping all day or staying up all night. It There was no rhyme or reason or consistency to any of it. It was very just in the moment. What do I want right now? And I'm going to get it, whatever that is, whether it's buying a pair of socks that make me happy when I'm sad or crossing a busy street without a crosswalk and not really caring of any of the consequences that may come from it. This is almost a part of my own grieving process that I forgot about. And I think a lot of people, a lot of other people who were watching me go through this, this is what they remember most about my grief is that feeling of there are extremes or there is nothing. And that's like, those are the two worlds that you live in. And that's not how like quote unquote normal people walk around existing in the world. Everybody else is kind of just like hanging out in the middle, pretty well balanced, nothing absolutely life shattering has just happened to me. And you're like, can't you see none of this matters? And yet everything matters at the same time. I'm really going to ramp up the extremes of how much can I feel or how little can I feel at the at the very same time. And yeah, it's like you said, you're holding both of those things in your hands at the same time. You're like, I don't know what to do with this. So I'm going to do everything. Yeah. And I felt absolutely like no consistency. No, you know, I'm really relating to you on this. And that's a portion I think that I forgot about because the other thing that I really remember is just feeling a total sense of like, you know, that buzzing sound after a concert when they turn off all the speakers and it's like that numbness of like, I'm not even, I'm not listening. I'm not feeling, I'm not sensing, I'm not tasting. Like everything is like that flat line numbness. Um, and it was either that or like the manic insanity. Yeah. And I'm like, this is, it's a very powerful and also very exhausting place to live. Totally. It's also really interesting to see how I sometimes romanticize that time. Um, I don't ever say it was easy or I want to go back there because it was absolutely the worst time of my life. And it's one of those things where if anything were to happen in the future, I nothing will be as bad as that. I know it for sure. I used to live in San Francisco and I remember walking down the street and seeing this man who appeared to live without a proper home crossing a really busy street in San Francisco with all of his things. And he just did not care. Like he did not give a fuck. And I had this jolt of, of remembrance of what that was like. And it was such an odd experience because then the second thing to remembering what it was like was a longing for it to just not give two shits, to just be a creature being a creature. And if I want to cross the street, I'm going to cross the street. If I'm going to sit on this sidewalk, I'm going to do it. If I'm going to yell at you, I'm going to yell at you. There was no filter of what is appropriate and what are the rules and how should I act. It was just, I'm going to do exactly what I want to do. And if you're in my way, I'm going to make you move. It's just this weird sense of every fiber of your body being so electrified or like you said, numb, like that 
analogy of a concert going off and it's that buzz. Like it's, it's so just one or the other. It's never this streamed line in between easygoing thing. How did this entire process fit into your life? How did you start to make things come to a place of that balance again? Okay. I was 22. I didn't know anyone my age who had lost a parent. I didn't have any resources. And I had people who were older, you know, in their 40s, in their 50s, in their 60s being like, I lost my mom when she was 80. So I know how it feels. And I was just like, fuck off. Like, you don't know Uh how any of this feels. And it's not to say that grieving isn't that right like one is not valued more than the other it's just like don't try to tell me that you can relate to me because you can't i was really pissed off cuz i was getting it from all angles and i started keeping a blog just for friends and family to kind of update me on how i was doing because when you're asked 40 times in a week, how are you? How are you? How are you? Do you need anything? Are you doing it? What are you thinking? What are you doing? It was so overwhelming that I felt like it was just this cassette tape playing over and over and over again. How are you doing? Not well. Do you need anything? No. Like, um, and so I started keeping a blog about just how I was doing. And I would share it on Facebook because I didn't know who wanted to check in on me or who didn't. Over time, I started getting people who I hadn't talked to in a while reaching out to me and being like, whoa, I had this experience too. And I know you, I don't know you that well, but like, this is my experience with that. And so that got me really thinking about how we talk about death and dying and how we don't know how to talk to others about it. And it was kind of this half-baked thing where I was just writing online for myself and for my family. And then about a year after my mom died, I traveled the world. Like I said in my bio, like I wanted an escape. But what I found through every single place was people who had similar stories and wanted to make connections around death. I, I remember being in China and I was with a friend of my sister's who's also you know, a friend of mine, she was like, what has this first year been like for you? And I remember saying, I wish we could all just learn how to have a dialogue around death. And she goes, huh, death dialogue. And that's kind of where the name came. I was like, yeah, this is what I want to do. This is what I want to talk about. It took a while to get started, but it started early on with just this frustration of no one wanting to talk about it, no one knowing how to interact around me, people being really shy or offensive or just not showing up at all. Um, and I was really vocal about the offensive things that people would say. So then I think it created this element of fear around me where people wouldn't want to interact because they were afraid that I would, they would say something wrong and then I'd call them out. So it just kind of developed from there. It started from being really frustrated and then moving on to realizing that this is a conversation that people don't know how to have and I can be a part of that. So what is death dialogue. For somebody who's never heard of it before or is new to your project, what is it? 
Death Dialogue is a place to talk about death and dying in a world that often doesn't. There's this whole underlying thing with Death Dialogue around permission, that you have permission to be human. In many ways, it's a it's a mission, and I'm still developing what it is because it's so many different things. I was talking to someone a couple weeks ago who I hadn't seen for two years. They were like, oh, yeah, it's a blog. And I was like, oh, no, <laughs> like... You, I, we haven't connected in a while. It is not a blog. A blog is part of it. I write on there. I feature other people writing about death and dying on there. I am doing a project right now called Conversations I Wish I Had, where I haul around a pop-up telephone booth and ask people to step in and have a conversation with someone in their life who died. I have a booklet coming out soon called Hard Stories Matter. And it's all about how we can live our lives sharing our hard stories. You know, when someone says, how are you? We don't have to say fine. We can say things aren't well. Do you have a second for me to talk to you about it? I'm working on a podcast for conversations I wish I had. People step in the phone booth and they have the option to record. This summer, I'm going to Sweden to develop another podcast called Dialogue, which is more investigative like more of an investigative look on death and dying. In May, I do something called a different kind of Mother's Day where I connect people who have lost a mom with mothers who have lost kids Mm -hmm. and they call each other on Mother's Day. And so, yeah, it's, it's a mission. It's a blog. It's an, it's interactive. It's, it's kind of multimedial and dimensional. Yes, and it seems like the concept of death dialogue is this giant umbrella. Oh my gosh, congratulations for all of those projects in development and for the ones that have already been birthed out into the world. That is absolutely huge. Thank you. Yeah, a big element of it was just kind of just doing it, right? Like for a different kind of Mother's Day, I thought of the idea three weeks before Mother's Day. And there was a moment of well, I should just do it next year. And then I was like, well, even if only 10 people sign up, that's good enough for me. So then I just quickly made a website and like put it out on a bunch of channels. And, you know, it happened. And that day, it felt so good to sit at my email. I mean, I wasn't at my computer all day. I was spending time with some, with my family, but to check my email and have emails from people being like, whoa, I didn't know I needed that. I didn't know how important it was for me to connect with someone who understands a little bit of what I'm going through on Mother's Day. And that was the point of the whole project. Oh, I've got chills listening to that and I'm like tearing up a little bit because <laughs> there's always like this whenever a loss like this happens and the day rolls around, it's like, well, now what do I do? Yeah. <laughs> even if you didn't really do a lot in the first place, even if it wasn't like a big major holiday, because my mom, uh, pretty much once my sister and I moved out or went to college, she was like, eh, Mother's Day, take it or leave it. Like a phone call would be nice, but we called on Sundays anyway. So like it, it wasn't, you know, this big puffed up holiday, but the first Mother's Day after I lost her, I was like, oh my gosh, now what do I do? Yeah, Like it, it was this whole thing. I didn't even know that I needed to like to do something. And apparently now I feel like I need to do something. Um, and, And that's just phenomenal. And even that mentality of it doesn't have to be big in order to start because everybody has lost 
someone, something, and to be able to connect them in that way. That's so powerful. I kind of want to rewind a second and and touch on something that you've mentioned a couple times, and that's like the role of frustration in the grief process. And I want to talk about like what being frustrated means to you, like what that feels like in your body and how like what the process is for you of taking frustration and making something out of it, because it seems like a very productive emotion for you, clearly, because all of this has sprung from, I'm just so frustrated with how this works. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's this frustration and being pissed, but not angry. I don't really think of myself as an angry person. In the beginning of my grief process, I definitely did. I was pissed and angry. And now it's more of this just... I'm pissed that people aren't talking about it. I'm pissed that people don't know how to talk about it. I'm pissed that people don't have the resources for it. And I could be pissed and just, you know, rage at the world and put my hands up and be like, why don't people get it? Or I could do something about it. And so I think frustration has been a big motivator for me because it's like, you know, I could complain that people don't know how to talk to me or I could create things that address that frustration allows me to take an active role in it versus just sitting frustrated that people don't know how to talk to me. And it's like, okay, we'll do something about it. I think that's something that I got from my mom. She was very much, very much a doer. If she wanted to do something, she did it. If, if I told her I wanted to do something, she, she was like, okay, do it. Like there was no, like, think about it a little bit or reflect. She was just like, if you want to do it, do it or don't talk about it. And there were times where I'm like, but I do shut up. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And there were times where I'm like, I just want to talk about it. And she's like, okay, like you have the idea you're, you know, it was so wonderful because my mom was so sure of my capabilities. She never questioned like, can Morgan do that? And she used to always say like, I can offer my um, feedback and opinions as a mom, but I know at the end of the day, you're going to do exactly what you want because I've been that way since I was born. (laughs) But I think, yeah, this turning frustration into action has just kind of been a part of me. I don't, I'm not someone who looks at things and wishes someone else would just do it. And right, like there, I can't address everything. There's a multitude of things that frustrate me in our world. And this is my tiny little corner where I'm so deeply connected to the grieving process that I was like, okay, uh, this is my corner. I'll take, I'll take on this one. With a different kind of Mother's Day, I remember sitting in a cafe in San Francisco And I was waiting for my food and I started, I opened up Facebook and I, the first thing I saw was a Mother's Day ad. And it was like, get your mom all these beautiful things and tell them that you love them. And I was like, well, I fucking can't. So what do I do now? (laughs) And so then I was like, okay, well, oh, and that, and I just had this moment of like, oh, there are people on the other side of this, like moms who have lost kids who are thinking the exact same thing. Cool. Let's make that connection. I just love it. I just and and you have this recognition of I have a choice in this. Mm-hmm. Of I can either sit here and keep complaining about it, which sounds like something your mom installed in you to put up or shut mm-hmm. up. I can sit here and keep complaining about it, or I can actually take some kind of action. And whether the action is big or small, it's still going to be a source of momentum or a source of progress in all of that. Totally. 
What's a conversation that you wish you had? Oh, like in the phone booth? Mm-hmm. Or like what's, what is your conversation that you wish you had? The one that comes up often is to my mom. And it's, it's not ever a, you know, I think when I first started doing the phone booth, the conversations I wish I had were, I wish I would have told you I love you more. And we were in an incredibly close family. I would talk to her every day, but I just wish I would have told her that again and again and again. And then now the conversations that I have are more of explaining my thoughts and my feelings, the times that I think about her, just kind of keeping her a part of my everyday, you know, one of my most recent conversations I had with her was after I had been, I went on a trip somewhere and I was in the airport and I was, it was a red eye flight and I was sitting in the airport and it was past midnight and I was looking around at all of these people and I was thinking about how my mom would have made friends with them. That's what she did. She just made instant friends with people. And it was kind of this moment of like, I could try, okay, maybe I won't. What would you do if you were here? And yeah, that conversation was really, really nice to have with her because so, right. Like we want to tell people who have died so many things. I want to tell my mom so many things. I want to tell her about my van trip and what I was thinking about and what I did. And we don't really allow ourselves to to do that. We maybe think about it in our mind, or maybe we write a letter sometimes, but we don't really like get it out of our bodies. And that was a powerful conversation for me. You're now continuing conversations with people who are alive and present to hear them, but with people uh, who exist in our heads and our memories in mm-hmm. another plane, if that's in your religious belief system. And I think that's really fascinating. Yeah, it was so funny. I was in the kitchen the other day and my mom taught us a little bit how to cook. Like she taught us how to do uh, like grilled cheese and scrambled eggs and things like that. <laughs> but my roommate and I were cooking together and I, and I had wished... I wished I could have called her and said, mom, I finally figured out a way to cook tomatoes where I'll eat them. Like I finally like tomatoes. That was like one of our biggest like beefs is she would go out in the garden, like grab a fresh tomato that she and my dad had grown. She'd be like, oh, it's just so good. And me and my sister would just not have any of it. We were just not dealing with tomatoes at all. And you know, as a 25 year old, I finally found a way to prepare tomatoes where I'll actually eat them. And I'm like, she'd be so proud of me. I'm like finally eating vegetables. And like, it's just such a weird thing to like want to say and to want to tell her because that's also intermingled with like, I wish you could have told me the story of when you questioned your faith and like grappled with questions of God and the universe and all this stuff. Oh, and also I learned how to like tomatoes. Like it's just, (laughs) it's, it's so, it's this dichotomous a conversation that still happens with her. And I do talk yeah. to her all the time, but I think, I think the work that you do is so cool because you're bringing light to the fact that it should be a conversation. And one of the key points of conversation is that it is ongoing. It's yeah. not a thesis that you deliver one time and then that's it. It's just like, this is something that needs to continue to happen. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because like even you said, it's weird that I want to talk about tomatoes and vegetables and about God, but I don't think it's weird at all because that's how, I mean, at least for me, when I talk to my friends and my family, those are my conversations. I'm like, oh, you want some more coffee? Oh, and I was thinking about this really complex existential thing. Oh my God, I forgot to tell you, I was at a coffee shop the other day and this thing happened, right? Those are our conversations. They're never just 
you know, the heavy and the serious, or they're never just the light, or at least mine aren't, they're, they're intermingled. And that's what I love about conversations I wish I had, because the people who choose to record their conversations, a lot of them are like, I'm in this phone booth, I don't know what I'm doing, but I was thinking about this really serious thing. Why didn't you do this? Why didn't you? I hear people in the background, right? It's this back and forth, and it can at times seem jumbled, but I think it's just a true reflection of how we talk to people. Yeah. And some of our favorite people that we interact with, you know, in our waking life, in our in our still human on this earth life, are those people that can hold all of those types of conversations with us all at one time. Nobody wants yeah. that one dimensional person. So it's it's a reminder too to bring your entire 3D human self to your continued relationship with the person that you've yeah. lost. It's like now that they're dead, you don't have to only talk to them in church or in like a recorded or like letter writing setting. Yeah. It's it's very much again going back to that permission granting of you are allowed to continue to have human conversations and like of all topics with with the people that you have lost in your life. Yeah. I'm curious now to know where you're going next, where people can find you in your work if you're mostly online now, if you're hitting the road, uh, where can people find what you're up to? So people can find me at deathdialogue.com. And then if people are wanting to interact with conversations I wish I had, I'm going on tour this summer. I'm still working on my cities and my dates right now, but it'll be from mid-April to the end of summer. The most recent upcoming event is in Santa Cruz, California. I'm doing a collaboration with the Museum of Art and History also known as the Ma. And they're doing, for this month, they're doing um, an exhibition on death and dying. So I'm doing a pop-up with them one day, and that's on February 11th. Um, I'm also like very active on Instagram. I talk a lot about death and dying. I write letters to my mom and I share them. I also live in a van and share a lot of van photos. <laughs> I love <And> it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And that's at Morgabob, M-O-R-G-A-B-O-B. It's a nickname that my mom gave me when I was little. So it just kind of stuck. Oh, I love it. So. <laughs> I also have one more random question before we wrap up today. And that is where the heck did the phone booth come from? Yeah. Okay. So a lot of people ask that. When I decided, okay, I want to do this, I started looking for contractors and I looked on Craigslist and there was an ad for, you know, someone who builds things and he had a beautiful website, you know, he showed his work and it was all beautiful. He does window displays and tables and for cafes and, you know, people's homes, stuff like that. And so I just emailed him and I said, Hey, um, I, ha I have this thing that I want to build. I have the design. I know what I want to look like. It's a phone booth. It has to be collapsible, lightweight, kind of sound resistant and beautiful. Can you do that? And he was like, Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we had a meeting and I was like, this is what it's for. This is what I want you to build. This is why I want it. And he was like, well, I make tables and chairs, but sure, let's try it. <laughs> and he did it and it's beautiful. Oh, wow. And I'm so thankful for him. And afterwards he was like, yeah, I should have charged you three times what I did. <laughs> right. Cause he's never done it before. He's like, how do I make a phone booth that's beautiful and collapsible and lightweight? And like, he quoted me a price and then it was right. He was like, if I ever do it again, 
Like, if I no. ever make another collapsible, yeah. soundproof, lightweight folding <laughs> phone booth, I'll know yeah. what to charge. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, there are thoughts down the line of how to have several of them and then not always. Right. I don't want to man it all the time. Right now I'm manning it. I do the release forms and the recording, but I'm in the process of figuring out how can I send this somewhere and just say, oh, you are a museum and you want to set this up. Cool. Here's how you do it. A conversations kit, something to look forward to in the future from you. Yep. I love it. Well, excellent. Thank you so much, Morgan, for joining us today, for coming back and for sharing the story of not only your mom's loss, but turning frustration into something that's been so creative, so productive, and so positively impacting of other people who are walking this road. Thank you so much for having me on. This was great. (laughs) So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Morgan Brown, creator of Death Dialogue, A Different Kind of Mother's Day, and Conversations I Wish I Had. Morgan came back by channeling her frustration about the question, how are you, into a blog for others to read, and by traveling where she sees the opportunity to connect with others over their own lost stories. You can find a link to Morgan's work in the show notes where you can find her upcoming museum appearance for Conversations I Wish I Had in Santa Cruz, California, which is taking place on February 11th. You can also check out her Instagram page, which I joyfully follow and recommend. If you're interested in hosting the Conversations phone booth in your area, please be sure to drop her a line before her upcoming summer tour. Join me for Facebook Live this Monday, January 29th at 1 o'clock Central Time. We'll be talking about what it feels like to miss someone, the stigmas society holds about missing people, and how you express missing someone in the physical world. Please subscribe and tell a friend about coming back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always and forever to Mr. Addie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com, subject line, podcast. As always, my dear grief growers, it was magnificent sharing this space and time with you today. I see you, I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world, and I love you, because even through grief, we are growing.